Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking with the Wounded with me, your host, Ben Stevens. Just before my guest today, I wanted to say thank you very much for the wonderful responses that I've had to the episodes that have been published to date. For all your encouragement, follow-ups, likes, and please keep spreading the word. A big thank you also to those of you who have felt moved enough to donate to the charities that my guests have highlighted, which they say have helped them along the way. The links for those charities for each guest appear in their episode bio. And likewise, same one on this one. You'll see the, the links in the bio. If you qualify for this podcast, and I get that it is the podcast that no veteran wants to really qualify for, but if you qualify for Talking with the Wounded, and I've got a story that you are happy to tell, and a charity that you'd like to highlight, then please get in touch with me. And the best way to do that is via email. That's the searchchicken at gmail.com. Get in touch and then we can set up a, a date and go from there. Right. This episode's guest has, on the one hand, been very, very lucky. But it could also be argued he's been very, very unlucky. And there's also a bit of a sting in the tail to this story, too. It's my great pleasure to introduce Carl Shadrake, who is the first non-commissioned officer. That's somebody who's been promoted from the level of a guardsman or a private up through the ranks for their leadership potential and their leadership role. So welcome to you, Carl. Thanks for having me, Ben. Before we get into your moments... Uh, spoiler alert, there is more than one. I'm just going to give the listener a brief outline of your service up to date, which, correct me if I'm wrong, begins in 2002 when you join the Grenadier Guards at Nijmegen Company, which is the sort of ceremonial bit in London. 2003, you enter the Queen's Company as a Guardsman. And then you get promoted quite quickly to Lance Corporal. Uh, which is the first rung on the ladder of uh, leadership. So that's sort of looking after a team of four guys. And you go on a tour to Bosnia in the winter of 2004-05. Correct. Where you are supporting an UN, was it? Yeah, so it was, it was a, a NATO tour. Which... A NATO tour. You're collecting weapons and keeping the peace. Yeah. Trying to get rid of legacy weapon systems from places they shouldn't be. Gotcha. 2005, you get back from Bosnia and you go off to Iraq, still as a Lance Corporal, where you work in PSYOPs, a divisional sort of role, so part of the big machine out of Basra in Iraq, yeah? Absolutely. 2006, you get promoted again to Lance Sergeant, which is the equivalent of a Corporal in the rest of the Army, and you join the battalion in Iraq on Optelic. Yeah. Second tour of Iraq. My second, the Your second. First. So on that tour, you are looking after securing prisons from people escaping and people getting in, security in the green zone, etc., etc. And then this is the bit where I'd like our story to begin. You are still a Lance Sergeant, and it's 2008, and you head off to Afghanistan as a section commander in an infantry platoon in the Queen's Company, and away you go. So, almost, yes. We 
Most of that is true. Uh, however, <laughs> the battalion was split down and we didn't go as a full-scale infantry unit. We were split down. So all the, all the private soldiers uh, and a lot of the Lance Corporals moved over to other infantry units for the tour. And then we formed an OMLT, an Operational Mental Liaison Team, which was all rank-heavy teams of six people. And then we would take a platoon of Afghan soldiers, sort of 50-plus Afghan army, we would train them up for a period of time and then we'd take them out on operations with our small team of commanders from, from the unit. Gotcha. Right. You've set the scene. That's the job you're doing. And what happens next? Well, the Taliban don't like very much, but one thing that they particularly don't like more than the Brits and the Americans is Afghan soldiers. So after training them up for some three to four weeks, we, we take them out on, on an operation. Uh, and the first one, up silicone, was, was a bit of a monster. We would try and dominate land, try and take back ground which had been previously heavily occupied by the Taliban. We'd form a huge presence, allow the people that lived in these towns, villages, to live a normal life without the control of, of, of the Taliban. And then we would set up outposts to allow the police and Afghan army to have a continual presence. And then we would move forward and we'd keep doing that. And it was sort of a, a punch into an area where troops hadn't been for a very long time. Right. And on one of those punches, you head back to base. Yeah, so uh, about four months into the tour... The day before my birthday, 1st of July, 2007, we were heading back to one of the Afghan compounds there to sort our administration out. And we'd been living out in Afghan huts, for a better phrase, for weeks at a time. We'd come back, resupply, get new batteries, all those sorts of things, and then head out. This is you, the commanders, just going back to your own Correct, base. Correct, yeah. yeah. And... and on this particular day, 1st of July, we head back as we would for a resupply and we just had this very successful operation and the town of Goreshk was the busiest we'd seen it in the whole four months we were there and we were confident that we were doing a, a very good deed and that the place was safer than it's ever been. Because there's population on the street, market traders... Market traders are everywhere. Normal life is beginning to bubble away. Absolutely. Uh, and because of that, you know, we feel that we're doing uh, a great job. Everyone feels safer. We feel safer. But during that resupply route, there was no um, suicide threat at the time that we were aware of. But sure enough, a targeted attack on our two-vehicle convoy a suicide bomber blew himself up right next to our vehicle and tragically killed my driver and wounded four four of us as, as part of the team. And What sort of vehicle is this? Just So we were in vehicles called Women. Um, uh, it's a weapons installation mounting kit and it, it's a stripped down Land Rover that has got a sort of Kevlar uh, pads which are kind of stitched to the side of the vehicle it, it's meant for mobility to get around the desert nice and easy nothing too clunky but it doesn't offer too much protection in the way of explosive devices so 
are you you're on the edge of of a of this town driving along the road and this suicide bomber comes out of the crowd are there people around or are you on a sort of you've already left town and you're on the on the outskirts what's the what what's going on around you when so when this happens we're we're on the outskirts of town and we we're going from the center heading out and at the time there was only one tarmac road in in the the whole of that area so it's the only place you felt safe from uh, an id because actually you would see the sign that an id had been planted so you felt quite safe on it and like i said there was no suicide threat at the time and you're moving um, quite quickly yeah yeah I mean, we're doing a good sort of 35 40 miles an hour or so and as I said, the market stalls left and right of us, they're as busy as they've ever been, if, if not busier. And as, as we're plodding along, a, a person next to a push bike right on the side of the road waits for our vehicle to come close uh, and then he detonated himself. And that's on your driver's side? That's correct. So you're hurtling along, your driver is killed instantly the rest of you are being taken out with shrapnel and whatever he had on him and the rest of presumably bits of vehicle flying around so as as the blast goes off i obviously i i know that we've been hit with some form of explosion i i don't know what it is at the time and it's blown me into the side of the vehicle and i'm i'm because you're in the front next to the driver as the yeah. vehicle comes. Yeah, so commander. I'm, I'm in, in effect, on the passenger of the vehicle in the front, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm the commander and I've got a weapon system that I'm pointing over to the left and that's where I, I had my arcs covered at the time. And the, the blast which came from the driver's side through the vehicle and it blew me into the, the left-hand side of the vehicle, uh, it wounded sort of my right-hand side, but it, it winded me and I... I could see that the market was was moving, so I knew the vehicle was was mobile, but I could also see that my 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 driver Dave he was he was slumped over the steering wheel and nobody was in control of the vehicle at the time, so my my instinct was to uh, stop the vehicle. So I, I reached over to put the handbrake on, but I I couldn't see or feel my right arm, uh, and and I I, I assume that I, I've lost it at this stage. So I reach over my left arm and I pull the handbrake and the blast must have knocked out some of the, the, the wheels, whatever happened. But as soon as I pulled the handbrake, the vehicle flipped over almost instantly. And we're now on the right-hand side of the vehicle sliding down the road. And like I say, we, we lived out in these compounds and we were self-sufficient for weeks at a time. So our vehicles were had our fuel to sustain us, ammunition and all that sort of stuff. So as the vehicle flipped over, a lot of that fuel then escaped. And because of the explosion, there was obviously fire and we, we were engaged as well, which meant that there's a, there a lot of a lot of bad stuff going on in, in, in one very small split second. And you got guys in the back? So I've got one guy in the back. He's providing top cover. So he's he stood up in the back and he's got a 50 caliber machine gun. Obviously, the blast has, has hit him and he's hit the deck straight away. And we've got a lot of ammunition cases in the back. As the vehicle's flipped over, a few of them have hit him around the face. And, and poor old Jason won't mind me saying, but he, he looks better for it. But he may have knocked a few teeth out and 
and you know he had, he had a few he's scars been beaten in up in the back yeah he's he's sort of uh, ping pong balled around the uh, the inside of the, the the back of the vehicle we flipped onto our side but the blast also knocked the top cover of the front vehicle the blast knocked him forward uh, and he smashed his head onto the the gmg the grenade machine yeah. gun and took off a big chunk of his left ear as well so he was momentarily knocked out unconscious so the lead vehicle pulls over up the road you guys have slid into the careered off into the ditch presumably what well, we still flipped over or you're yeah, on the so road we, still but we, yeah we're just on the road and it's all cooking off yeah and you're now under contact as well yeah that's correct so chaos is raining and you are now i need to get out of here yeah so i've the vehicle's come to a stop and i've i've stood up and everything is blurry i can't hear very much apart from this big ringing sound and i can see this fire i can see the vehicle in front has stopped and the commander saw he he came out and he was sort of shouting something waving at me to to go towards him and i i didn't have my weapon system on me at the time because i was using a a mounted weapon a, a gm a gpmg and even though you, you literally you sleep with your weapon system, I did not think about it. I just sort of walked off in a bit of a haze and I was holding onto my neck. And I, I knew my neck was, was wounded. I didn't know how much. And I, I pulled my left hand away, which was holding my neck at the time. And I, I, there was a lot of blood there. And I, I, just, I just kept walking. I probably took about 10 paces and, and then uh, came and sort of, grabbed me along with another guy called Jack Mizon. Um, and they both sort of threw me into the front vehicle. And your injured top cover chap in the back, he's making his way out of the mess too. So yeah, he, he got a bit of a scorching from the fuel that had caught fire and he he managed to get out of the vehicle and walk to the the front vehicle or at least extract himself to the vehicle and the uh, driver yeah. is not going anywhere uh, and you uh, kind of know he's not going to either well well at the time absolutely didn't didn't know that you know i at that moment in time it i i was not with it and i like i said didn't think about my weapon system didn't did, didn't think about anything and i'm so the guys in the leave wagon they have to establish, presumably, what's... Or they're yeah. trying to work out what the hell's Correct. happened. Correct, yeah. So we're under contact. We are... We can see Fob Price, the place where we're going. We, we can see it. So we know the QRF can see us and that they would have seen the blast and, and people will be getting just, crashed just, out. Just for the listener, QRF means quick reaction force. So that's a, a team in the base who are ready to go at, any, at a moment's notice. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we're getting onto the front vehicle... Um, and getting out of contact and, and getting out of contact at the time I I didn't do a head count I, I wasn't in the place to but Dave who was my driver at the time he wasn't part of our vehicle that extracted from there yeah so we so you're now piled into the lead vehicle so all of us are hanging on to the bonnet and, and, and getting and, out of the and trying to get out of the contact so contact again for the listener 
contact with the enemy means that you're actually communicating with him via high velocity rounds. You're, it's a two way range. He's shooting at you and you're either shooting back or moving yourself out the way of where he's shooting. Bearing in mind, this is a bit of an ambush. So you, those are the sort of contact drills that we have to get yourself out of that firing zone as soon as possible. So that's what you're doing. Absolutely. So we, as we get out of the killing zone, we are on the single track heading toward the forward operating base, FOB Price. And as we get probably 400 metres away from the, the entrance, the QRF are coming out to secure the area. We've, we've broken contact this stage. We're not getting fired at. And I've, I've passed out briefly. You know, there's, there's black patches in there. I don't really remember... I do remember the vehicle crashing into one of the chicane barriers and we had to do a 27-point turn to, to get out of there. To get to the base. Yeah, to get into the base. It, it, yeah, it was... No one could see properly, no one could hear properly. It was, yeah, it was a bit of a plava. We, we, yeah, so then we, we sort of ploughed through the, the entrance and the, the field hospital was sort of just inside there. So your D-bus... And presumably somebody grabs a hold of you because they see what sort of state you're in, and 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 you're then into into the medical. medical. Yeah, so I'm I'm sharing a chair with the, the patrol commander Sai, and Jack Mizon comes out the driver's side, comes round to me, puts both his arms sort of under me to as if we were just recently married, and and as he pulls me out of the vehicle, my head smashes on the side. He drops me like a sack of spuds. And the medics shout at him just to leave me lying on the floor. They've got a stretcher. I get thrown onto the stretcher and, yeah, within, you know, probably six to eight minutes of being from the blast, I'm already in the field hospital. It was a very quick turnaround because we were so close. And what's the extent of your injuries? So the, the adrenaline is clearly still there. And I'm I'm in the hospital. I'm feeling that things are going to go slightly better than I thought five minutes previous. And all my clothes have been chopped off me. And I've, I've then had that clarity of thought of what about everybody else? So I've asked the team and, you know, I've, I can see a, a handful of there and everybody else has told me, look, just concentrate on you. You know, let, let's, let, let's you know, concentrate on, on, on you getting better and, and then we'll get everybody in later on. So, okay. So yeah, they've, they've chopped my clothes off. The, the medic who was dealing with me at the time, I had a bit of a joke. I was like, I've lost a lot of blood here, so uh, normally I'm, I'm a little bit bigger than this. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it's the first time she'd heard that, but it was... I was j- going to say, <laughs> he, he or she. <laughs> <laughs> She's heard it all before. <laughs> and, yeah, so they, they, they sort of stabilised me, put a, uh, a big sort of pad on my neck, and the shrapnel that had came in, it had hit the windpipe and... and a, you know, some of the, the, the small veins around there, but it hadn't severed the artery at the time, which was, obviously, good for me. Any other injuries? You're not peppered with shrapnel at this stage? Yeah, so, I mean, I've looks like I've, you know, had sandpaper rubbed all over my face. You know, everything's red raw. Yeah. But at, at, the, at the time, you know, all I've got is this, this one injury that I'm, I'm concerned what about. What are you conscious of? You know, I... I so I am... 
at this forward operating base waiting for a helicopter to go to Camp Bastion, the, the, the main hub. So this is a Chinook with a Mert team or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So within, well, less than half an hour, we are on that and heading Who's back we? to Camp So there was myself and I'm, I know Jason was there, the guy that was in the back of the vehicle with me. I don't remember everyone else's face. I was passing in and out of conscience at the time. Because you, you, you give you a bit of morphine, do they? I was definitely on meds, yeah. Whatever I, it was. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they stuck some things in me. And when you get on that chopper, are you aware of your driver? No, no, I'm still not aware at, at this stage. I, yeah, I, I, I'm oblivious to it at this stage. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're out of it. Yeah. So you get on the chopper... You get back to Bastion? Yeah, so I, I don't remember landing at Bastion, but I remember being on a stretcher inside the medical tent in Bastion. And there was this uh, elderly gentleman there who had a massive white beard, looked like Santa. And he's like, listen, we're, we're going we're gonna to operate and you know, you, you'll, you'll wake up in a couple of days and the job's a good one. And I was like, okay, that's that's great, but I'm you know I've been on the ground for ages, been really dusty. I'm 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 really thirsty. Any chance I can have a, a swig of water? So they gave me a a cup of water with a straw, and I was lying down. I had a sip of that water, and I coughed, and had the false aneurysm. So my my artery then popped, and because I already had the the artery in your neck in my neck, and because I already had the open wound that was there, it sprayed Santa. And some of the nurses to my side, I vaguely remember that for about four seconds, and and then I passed out, because it's your main artery and you've got a lot of units now pouring out. Yeah. So this is all from coughing bursts. It probably has something to do with the suicide blast as well. You know. For sure. For sure. Yeah. But uh, but, 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 but 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 that hair trigger. That's the lucky bit, right? Is it, that it, you had it outside the operating theatre. Yeah. A- anywhere else, I, I, I would have been brown bread, without a doubt. Because you, you bleed out quick. Yeah. So you're right next to the operating theatre. And now there's a sense of urgency. They get you in there, clamp you shut and stop the bleeding. And fill me back up. Fill you back up. Patch you back up. And you wake up where? So I wake up three days later in Birmingham, gutted that I missed my birthday. And I am in intensive care. I still have my beard because we were out in compounds and we had limited water supply. We, we were sort of, we'd, we'd gone rogue. We had dis- <laughs> You're dis- looking rough around. You're yeah. not the clean cut guardsman. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, the, the, the Queen would have been mortified at the time if we'd been outside working in Palace. But... Yeah, I've got this honking beard. It's full of dirt, blood, and, and, and I'm just... And that's an intensive care. And I, at the time, I don't know, it's three days later, but I've, I've woken up and I'm clearly uh, clearly in, this, in a very clinical, clean place. And I, I get informed quite quickly that I'm, I'm, I'm in Birmingham, to which... This is what's like, happened. I was, I was like, am I safe here? You know, do I need to go back to, to Afghanistan? I'm like, no, look, Birmingham is safe. You're good. You, you can stay. Okay. Okay, good. So, mum's by your bed. Family are picking you up now. You, you then get into recovery. Yeah, I I spent, I think, 
three or four days in intensive care before going to a general ward for for only three weeks and that whole time my oppo jason was with me who was also there healing from from the wounds he'd sustained i think he got out of cup probably a week before i did and then yeah once i was discharged at sort of back end of uh, july I, I then sort of went on to to go home for a week before reporting back to the unit for some more work when did you discover about your driver so it was whilst I was in intensive care in Birmingham. Okay. Yeah. You presumably miss his funeral and things like that? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. So you recover, you're patched back up, you return to the unit, but not back out in theatre. No. They're now back. Yeah. So By the, the time you're patched up and ready, they the tour's over. So I'm... Patched up back with the unit uh, that is keeping the, the base secure in the UK. The rear party. The rear party, yeah. correct. And I, I, I need to stay with them for the last four or five weeks of the tour. During that period, I made some uh, appointments with doctors, dentists to, for you know, damage to teeth and things. And then I missed all of those appointments. I didn't remember making them. And I clearly had this traumatic brain injury and memory loss issue which I wasn't aware of until it had been highlighted I'm missing a lot of appointments so I flagged it up and then I ended up spending five months in Headley Court sorting out my my memory because of the the blood loss so I lost 11 units of blood so everything I, that's, I that's lost everything. And, and more I, I, I lost it all so I had a obviously the blast injury and the vehicle coming to a stop the blood loss it, it caused so massive concussion yeah oxygen starvation of the brain it needs a bit of a reboot yeah and i you know, painfully during that sort of back five six weeks of the tour we we had some more uh, casualties and uh, quite severe casualties and i was getting told oh such and such has been been injured that you know they've, they've lost at least one leg maybe two and i'm like who and they're like Oh, you know, such and such. I'm like, nah, come again. Who, who, who's that? And they're like, it's one of your best mates. And I'm like, what? And I, I could not put faces to names. I were you I, going to funerals or no? Because there wasn't any more. There, there was no more funerals after, yeah. afterwards. But um, you're not recognizing any of these buddies. No, absolutely not. My you're my, la -la my, my brain, my brain was was absolutely shot. So I'm not going to Headley Court for like I say for five months and it works you get fixed you get better yeah you uh, return to whatever Carl Shadrake normal is <laughs> yeah you get there so I, I went there from the August right through to the December and then I then went to a two-year post into Purbright to train new recruits which is a great job very satisfying that's fantastic there you are as an instructor you're training the next cohort so you do that job for a couple of years get fit get healthy get strong again everything's working you're fully functioning infantry section commander yeah so i finished the, the two years there i the light shone on you again leadership potential time to go on another course and get promoted back to wales for another four months during the big freeze in 2010 
Still sends a shiver down my spine, it does. <laughs> you make it through the course, you get promoted, you're now a platoon sergeant, the most powerful man in the platoon. Wow. And, <laughs> and you go back to the Queen's Company. I do. And you're a platoon sergeant in the Queen's Company. And then the next sort of big event is 2012, you are back in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's, there's a, a five-year gap from the first tour to the second, and, and two of those were in Purbright, some promotional courses, but we also did pre-deployment training in Canada uh, as a unit. So we did do lots of bits and bobs in the middle, but yeah, yeah summer, summer tour again, 2012. But you've learned your craft now as a platoon sergeant. Yeah, You're... I find myself in Bryce Norton, staring at a plane, taking my platoon to Afghanistan. And this is your first term back since you... Yeah, absolutely. ...left in a deep sleep state yeah. to work up in Birmingham. Yeah. So how's that feel? So I... Pretty apprehensive. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was in Bryce and I was, I was looking at the flight. And, and <laughs> at first, I was, I was actually quite apprehensive about it all. I was like, you know, am I, am I, what am I doing? <laughs> This is, this is down. Well, look what happened last time, you plonker. And then I was like, look, look it's going to be good. You know, we, we trained for this. We, and at the time, the, the, the company was the fittest we'd been. We had managed our drills. The, tra- the level of training we'd done, I genuinely felt that we were the, the, the best that the unit had been, in my time anyway. So I was confident in, in the ability of the entire team. And... We were about to board the flight, and turns out it, it wasn't a military flight that was taking us the, the long leg. It, it was Air Fiji. And, and, the, and the cabin crew had these flipping floral shirts on. So there's me gearing up for war, getting all anxious. And, 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 and you got the holiday brigade on. And I'm like, am I on the right flight? Are they uh, serving you pina coladas all I, the way to... I bloody wish they did. But no, no, there was, there was no I can confirm there was no pina coladas. That's a bit sick of whoever thought that Air Fiji would be a great way to take people to war. Yeah, so they... Somebody they, somewhere in the RAF's pissing themselves. Yeah, so they, they, they took us to, I think it was Lashkagar or, you know, one of the, the pre-hubs. Then we, we, we changed over onto a military flight and did sort of the last bit yeah. all the way in. But yeah, Air Fiji took us. And I was like, what, what am I getting anxious about? I got... I got these guys in in floral, sk- floral shirts and and grass skirts <laughs> taking me to war. Okay, so you get into theatre. You're sort of in the same piece of real estate that you were on the on the previous tour. Yeah, so on on this particular uh, tour, completely different role. Uh, rather than training the Afghan army, taking them out, we are uh, a sort of standalone infantry unit and we were operations company we we worked in a, in a slightly different setup than, than the normal but in essence i had a team of guys the platoon commander had a team of guys and we were doing the stuff that we've been training for for patrolling checkpoints dominating the ground kicking doors down taking the out taking on the enemy yeah it's still quite kinetic at this time isn't it's, it it's, it's extremely kinetic so that the patrol that we went out on, we would helicopter into an area where British troops hadn't managed to be for for a long time. Um, And we would dominate the ground. We would take over compounds, live from there, 
conduct operations from those areas. Chat with the elders. Intelligence gathering and, and, and showing a, a presence, showing yep. a force. We would have specific missions while we were there, rather, you know, dominate certain types of ground, go and, you know, harass the enemy in this area, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Uh, and we had quite a few arrest ops while we were there. There were some big players in, in the areas we were heading to. And it was all really exciting infantrymen. But the, the first big op that we went on, almost the first round that went down range was one of our guys was, was shot uh, and killed sort of instantly, which sent a shiver down everyone's spine. We had a lot of new guys in the team and it, it sort of really Was that from your zone. platoon? He, he wasn't my platoon, but we were working at, at company strength at the yeah. time. He was in three platoon. Um, and it, it just, you know, the, the, the sadness that came with it, the, the disbelief, you know, it was pretty much the first round of the first contact we'd been in. And it just... Ripped the guts out of everyone. Yeah, I mean, we, we felt like we were absolute kings. We, we, we were the fittest, the best we'd ever been. Yet the first round down range took one of our, one of our really good guys out. And it was, yeah, it, it was an absolute kick in the, in the ghoulies. Yeah. But you pick up your team, you dust them off, you get going again, and you keep working back into the fight every other day so the area that we're in is in and around the same area that i was five years previous in a, in a lovely town called goresh so you're passing the point of your previous incident so i absolutely passed that it's that send a shiver down your spine do you slightly flinch when you go past this point or are you going i'm still here so obviously we weren't in contact this time so it wasn't as bad the lay of the land had changed. There was additional buildings. The road was wider. It had more offshoots. So it didn't look or feel the same. Yeah. I just knew it was the same place. Yeah. Okay. So, as I alluded to at the very beginning, you have one more than one moment. You then have another event. Yeah, so... We're, we're, we're in Goresh, the same town that we'd been in five years uh, previous, or at least on, on the peripherals. And we have killed some enemy. Uh, they are at a distance and, and they are being removed by a casualty evacuation party uh, suspected that- to be the Taliban. So we, we can see them at afar, but we can't see any weapons. There's nothing we can do about it. But we need to try and intercept that to get the forensics from the, the, the Taliban that we, we've just killed, who yeah. did have a weapon system, who was digging in an IED at the time. And, you know, we're, we're, my team are on the way to, to go and do forensics on this, collect the weapon system. Before we get there, casual evacuation party arrives, starts removing him. So we sort of speed things up a little bit, but there's a... We're trying to go through a, a wadi, sort of a bit of a stream that's built up left and right with all sorts of vines and God knows what. And, and we came across a lot of areas which we suspected were, were booby traps. So, you know, it really slowed down our pace. But ultimately, there was this cluster of buildings where the eyes in the sky had told us that 
you know the, the body's headed to there we've got great visual around that so you know head there so that's where we were going and as as we approached we were informed again that the body has moved over to the east into an opening and it looks like they've tampered with the body so you know they could have booby trapped the, the taliban so approach with caution okay that's fully understood so i shake my guys out and and i'm expecting i'm expecting a fight i'm expecting some sort of ambush uh, you know it feels like a come on um and i've got uh, americans uh, up in the sky uh, in two separate helicopters who are giving us top cover so if the proverbial does hit the fan then then we've got some protection and i've also got two other platoons of guys in compounds you know probably seven eight hundred meters away so i've shaken my guys out we've got some more round protection we brief them up that there's there's likely to be contact if it does it's probably going to come from there there or there um and then myself and my point man we go forward uh, into this open space to see if we can recover weapon system and and do collect forensic evidence and the reason for that is you know the intelligence gathering was, was much better and we could find out if a prolific bomb maker had been captured because his fingerprints had been left over so so we we need that to understand if we've caught a really big player or if if it's an unknown then then you know it's it's yeah. no great shake. So that's the reason why we need to go there, yeah. and ultimately we take probably our, our first or second step of, of going forward. We're still on the baked hard ground at this stage. We haven't even got into the open, and my point man steps on on an ID, and all hell breaks loose again. So you're how far away from your point man? I'm I'm about two meters away at this stage. We've just stepped Stepping off. off. Yeah. He steps on, it goes bang. Yeah. And you're pretty close. Obviously he gets pretty bust up, but you get sort of peppered with earth, shrapnel, whatever. Yeah. Blast. So he... You're, you're blown over again. So he... he he stepped on the ID and obviously he, he took the, the brunt of it and he, he lost one leg instantly. You could see that um, he had lost one, uh, but the other, the second leg was, was seriously wounded. It, it later comes to like that, he, he ended up losing both legs. That blast that went off, uh, it had peppered my face, took a little bit of my lip off, a bit of my nose. My face was red raw. I had a through and through through my left arm. It's sort of gone in through the bicep and created a big opening on the outside of, of my left arm. And my eye protection undoubtedly saved my vision. So great bits of kit. They were ballistic yeah. and they, they undoubtedly saved my eyes. Equally, my body armour, you know, it's it saved my internal organs. And you also have a ballistic set of pants, which protect your meat and veg. Yeah. Uh, in the case of a, of a blast. But to keep your body mobile, the pants and the body armor aren't connected so that you've got rotation on your core, which that creates a gap of about... Sort of around about where your belt is. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Creates a small gap of about a centimeter. And sure enough, a, a piece of the blast or a piece of my point man, Ed, you know, a piece of his leg has sort of landed in that small gap and gone, gone into my stomach. And obviously I've been blown backwards at this stage. 
I've landed on my left hand side with all my comms kit, command kit. And as I've landed on my left elbow with the full force of this, at the time I, I didn't know the level of the, the, the damage, but it, it gave me a lot of nerve damage and sort of ripped apart my, my scapula, which is your shoulder blade. Yeah. Okay. Chaos reigns. You're now unaware. I mean, presumably your you know, ears ringing all over again and your rest of your team start trying to put you back together, Cassie back you. So what am I... Understand what's going on. Yeah, so one of, one of my members of the, the team is a guy called Doggy Adams, which I know you, you know quite well. Yes. So he, he came in to, to help... You or your point man? The point man, definitely. He was a lot more wounded than I was. So uh, Doggy went, went straight to, to help Ed. Obviously, we had started the protection around the team that the rest of the platoons, they obviously heard the blast because they, they were in a you know, visual of, of us. They would have known exactly what, what had happened or at least had, had a good inkling of what had happened. So their QRF would have been crashed out instantly. But also we had these two helicopters from the Americans directly above us and they'd been whinging for a good five, ten minutes that they were running low on fuel and they needed to head back to Bastion. And I asked them to stay as long as they could because I was expecting an ambush or a come on and I was expecting kinetic fire from, from small arms to which they could return some some really good weight of fire that I wouldn't be able to do from the ground. Yeah. So I, I pleaded with them to stay. And, and then once the blast went off, they went, look, we've got five minutes. We have to go. We are going to, we're going to cook off. We, we, we're going to have no, no fuel left. We'll fall out the sky. Yeah, literally we'll fall out the sky. And then I, I had a, 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 a controller with me who, who was in direct comms with uh, the, the helicopter. So I said, look, you're going back to Bastion. We're going to cr- uh, crash out the QRF from Bastion. It's about an 80, 90 minute flight time each way. Um, what's the chance of you taking Ed back to Bastion? You know, he's lost at least one, possibly both legs. And, and you've got the golden hour where you, you want to get your, your people that are injured back within a, a main hospital within a, an hour and that drastically increases your chance of survival yeah and so i had that in my head like the, 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 without doubt the quickest way is to get ed there now and sure enough the, the americans were like yeah make space we're, we're coming in and they 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 tried to do uh to, to come down there wasn't enough space so they, they sort of did a bit of a fly around we made some more more some more space and sure enough they came down landed and and that sort of three, four minutes that it took to coordinate that. Um, Dougie had, had patched up Ed pretty good. Uh, my 2IC had put a, a bandage on my, on, on my left arm uh, to stop that uh, bleeding there. And I, I knew my stomach was hurting, but I, I sort of I didn't know at the time. And, and the blood was mixed in with, you know, other bits that was going on. So, uh, and yeah, the, the helicopter landed uh, and we, we threw sort of the stretcher straight on. And, and the gunner on the plane, because it was an American Huey, so the ones you stereotypically see in the, the, the Vietnam-type films. Yeah. The gunner was like, look, I, I'm, I'm the gunner. I can't look after him. You, you, Here's a seat. You, you need to come on and look after him. So I hopped on and, and, and we, we took off. You know, within 30 seconds, we were you know, well and truly on our way. You know, the, 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 the carnage had calmed down a little bit at that stage. 
and all of a sudden I'm left with a, a, a casualty in, in front of me and Ed's struggling to breathe. So I've taken his body armour off. Uh, he, he's still bleeding from the, from the tourniquets a little bit. So I've had to tighten them, give him some morphine along the way. So yeah, it, it was a, a good call that the Americans were like, Look, let's get somebody else on here. And, and you're injured yourself. I, I am. But at the time, I know my face is really sore. My face is stinging. The adrenaline's starting to calm down. My face is really, really sore. Um, and I know my arm's bleeding, but I, I can't necessarily feel that too much. And we are just getting to Bastion. And we are 15 seconds from landing and, and the QRF flies out. So it hasn't even left yet to pick us up. And we're already back in Bastion. So we're like, look, we, we, without doubt, the right call. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know at the time, but as the helicopter landed, it cut, and the, the American pilot that agreed to come down to pick us up actually broke protocol. And there was a lot of shouty, upset people, disgusted by the behaviour of this individual, who is now actually a, a family friend, Brian Jordan, who's still in, in the US Marine Corps now, and has trained many pilots since then. Because he, 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 he went past the point of no return. He, he did, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he completely went above and beyond. Broke protocol to, to help save one of our guys. And he ended up being awarded the, the British Flying Cross. And he was the first foreign soldier to receive it since World War II. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And you're back in a medical centre. Amputee that you've been looking after is wicked off and away he goes. Yeah. And his treatment begins and then is this when you consciously work out what's happened to you so i i step out of the helicopter and i feel this gut-wrenching pain like you've been kicked in the ghoulies it was like that but a, a little bit more it wasn't drastic but i stood there and i was like oh someone's need me in the nuts what's going on and there was a a wheelchair there and the lady behind the wheelchair was, it was a lady called Sam Walden. I'd been an instructor at Purbright with her for two years. She's like, Carl, what are you doing back here? You've already been here once. So we had a, a small, small joke, even though I'm, I'm, I'm in need of medical, medical care. I miss you so much. <laughs> yeah. And, and sure enough, I get, I get wheeled in. Uh, I get onto the bed. And again, they start stripping me naked. And, and then that's when I've sort of realised, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quite hurt in the stomach. And... I, I know that I definitely need surgery. And they said, look, you know the drill. We're going to give you some drugs. You are probably going to wake up in Birmingham. And sure enough, that's, that's what happened. Days later? Yeah, again, it's three days later. It's some, some good meds. Woke up in intensive care. And this time I got married in, in, in sort of the, the time between tours. And my wife was at the foot of the bed. As I woke up, still high on the medication, didn't fully appreciate I was in Birmingham. And I was like, babe, why have you come to Afghanistan? This, this place is a hellhole. And she's like, no, we're in Birmingham. And I was like, oh, just as bad. <laughs> so, so you, Can I just point out, I am from West Bromwich originally. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> you, you, can, you, you can insult them all you like. In that intervening time between arriving in Birmingham and waking up and seeing your wife, have they, they've operated on you? Like, or? So, so they've done a, a laparotomy, which is kind of like a, a C-section, where obviously they take a baby out. But this time they, they, they cut it from 
uh, sort of top down rather than side to side. And then they take out your intestines and all that. They give it a good old clean out, get rid of the bits of shrapnel, repair any damage, throw it all back in and then stitch you up. Okay. So you, you, did you lose any, any, of, any of your intestines? Everything they pull out and clean, they can stitch back up and put back in or are you a couple of feet short? So I, I, I never actually asked the question. I don't know. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't stop me eating, I can tell you that. So <laughs> It's all working. Yeah, so, yeah okay. I mean, I, I got a, quite a big hole in my, uh, on my left-hand side, just sort of where the, the belt sits. Um, and that's where the shrapnel went in. They obviously managed to get it out. Uh, what damage that did, you know, I, I would never know. I, oh, yeah. I don't read my medical notes. So you're... I'm infantry, I can't read. <laughs> you don't want to read. Not that anyway. So you come round, people have fixed various bits. What's the sort of prognosis for your arm and your shoulder? And So at the time, didn't your know about... Fa- your, your, your rub raw face, what's... Yeah, so my, my face now is starting to scab over and it's, it's the entirety of my face. Again, my beard had probably protected me a little bit so i had i think four or five stitches on my lip just to bring that back in a couple on my nose but my face had got away with most of it and, and like i said the, the, the glasses undoubtedly saved my vision i had 20 stitches on my left arm um sort of most of them were on the outside where the, the, the wound was was bigger and randomly during my stay in hospital i my wife asked if I was okay, and I sort of flexed my gun. And I was like, yeah, of course I'm fine. And I, I popped the stitches whilst I was in there. Not because I'm massive, because clearly I'm not. But... Split them all I, out. I split, so they had to put me back through again. So what was a really neat, nice scar, and it's like a, quite a cool Z, like a bit of Zorro or something. Now it's just a bit of a car crash. Oh, but it's my, own, it's my own doing. What a plonker. Whilst you're in Birmingham, are you aware of your point man and what he's absolutely? So he he's going I, I know he's in the hospital with me. I know that he's lost both legs and he's still in intensive care, and they don't know at this stage if he's going to make it. He's in a really bad way, and I, and I I knew that was the case, and and that stayed the same way for for many weeks mm-hmm. uh, whilst I was in hospital. You eventually get out. Are you back to Selly Oak or somewhere for recovery, or what's what's your journey look like? So I was in Selly Oak the in two thousand and seven for the yeah. first injury. Then I was in the Queen Elizabeth the the second time. Food was better in Selly Oak, by the way. And <laughs> I yeah, this time I'm I'm there for just over three weeks, and I go back home for uh, some rest and recovery. And you know, I've got 50 something staples in my stomach. You know, I've got 20 plus stitches in my arm, quite a few on my face. I'm just licking my wounds at home. So this, the, this second incident, did that happen quite near the first one? So the incidents happened less than a kilometer away from each other. They they were extremely close in terms of geography, yeah. Obviously, they were both improvised explosive devices, and I've gone through the same sort of 
hospital chain to, to, to get back to yeah. via Bastion. The only difference is on, on this particular time, also one of, uh, of those differences is I'm married, so my, my wife meets me at the end. Uh, and also during that medium term, my, my younger brother, he had also joined the Grandier Guards and he was in Afghanistan with me uh, for the second tour. And they flew him back to come and see me in hospital. When I woke up, I think a day later, he, he was there and he saw that I was being an absolute fraud and went, look, Carl, you look absolutely fine. You're high on drugs. You're all good. I'm, I'm going to go and enjoy my two weeks off. because he, He's got his R&R he's got at his that R&R. time. Gotcha. Yeah. So he, he's... And is your younger brother who's sort of, I don't know what, five years younger than you, 10 years younger than you? What's the age difference between you guys? So the age difference is eight years. Okay. And so he's back, checks on, checks on on the big bro. Yep. Says you'll live. Yep. I'm off to have some fun. I'm off to go and get some beers down, down range. You then get home to recovery and... So he, he comes to stay with us for a little bit. Yeah. His, his flight was delayed. I then take him back to camp. He gets on, on, the, on the bus and, and heads, heads off back to Afghanistan. So you're fit enough to take him... Back to camp. I mean, my wife and I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Drives you back. You wave him off. There's a couple of months left to go on the tour. Yeah. Yeah. So here comes the kick in the bollocks. Yeah, so he, he went back. What happens next? Yeah, he's, he's, he's gone back and he has rejoined his platoon, which was the reconnaissance platoon, which were attached to the Queen's Company. And he'd been back there for four, five weeks. And we got a phone call, or at least I, I received a phone call for, from my mum in absolutely hysterics. And I instantly thought, oh, Jamie's stepped on an IED, um, you know, but I'm, I'm sure he'll be okay. And I can't understand what she's saying. And, and then somebody else takes over the phone who has, has clearly notified my mum. And, and they say, look, Really sorry to inform you, but your your brother's been been shot and killed by by the Taliban. And you know, I I felt numb at the time. I didn't know if it was real. I hadn't even had my staples taken out at this stage. And yeah, it's just this overwhelming numbness. I I mean, I was I was obviously sad, but my whole body just went into this real weird state that I I had never been in and I haven't been in since and I, I think it was probably a bit of shock um but yeah I I I just didn't want to believe it so your mid recovery as you say staples in and your brother's flown home and it's family funerals yeah. Um, and you're still, I mean, you're still coming to terms with your shit sandwich. Yeah. So. And you're the big brother, you're the platoon sergeant, you're the man of the hour, you're married. Your mum and dad. Yeah. Dad's still around, they're in pieces. Yeah, absolutely. The Shadrakes have, I mean, mum's been shook up with you twice already. Little brother's presumably followed you into the regiment because he's seen what, a, what 
Yeah. I mean, I did. It looks great. I did a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, and he's gay. That looks brilliant. Absolutely. He's starting out. He's obviously clearly a good soldier. He's in the recce platoon. Yeah. He's he's uh, he's forging ahead. And you guys are then all going to his funeral. Yeah, I mean, the the repatriation flight was um was was really difficult. You know, I'd. I'd been on the other side in, in Afghanistan where the, the repatriation flight had left and you know we couldn't attend those funerals, but I hadn't been on the other side of it. I been on the receiving end. Uh, and, and, and obviously... This is down at Bry's or... Where uh, are they coming Bassett. Yeah. And, yeah, a repatriation flight comes in and, and then when you see the coffin coffins on this particular repatriation where there's a couple of families there with us and from from other incidents and that's when it sort of really hits you you're like there there is absolutely no coming back from this there's there's this peace holding on to oh someone's got this wrong and an admin has, has has typed in a name wrong this it can't be Jamie the odds are so stacked against us of this being Jamie you're you're hanging on for somebody to say sorry we got it wrong yeah Go home. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, that, that never came. So you bury your brother. You're still recovering. And now are you picking up the pieces of your parents and your family and yourself? What, what, what? Yeah. I mean, our family. What's happening for you now? So our family had been split for. You know, since my early childhood, I lived with my father and my sister in France. I moved out there when we were quite small, at the age of eight, and then my mum and my brother grew up in in the UK. So you know, the, the family had been split, and and I hadn't necessarily had a a very big relationship with my mum because you were brought up by your dad because I brought up my dad in another country. But actually, throughout this, um to the situation that we found ourselves in it you know it brought us all close um you know the, uh, there was still a lot of uh, bad blood between parents and things but you know the, the it, it brought the siblings in yeah uh, to, to with the parents much okay. much closer with that show of that so you get better you get fixed you get fit and healthy but so i you get medically discharged yeah, I. So. Not long after we got the news from, Jamie, I had, I'd gone out in the shower and I'd had my staples removed and and the wounds were starting to heal a little bit and and I was getting more mobility, and I noticed that my my left arm, I just couldn't move it in the same direction and and anywhere, near the same height as I could my right, so I flagged it up with the doctors and then I ended up spending just over four and a half months at Headley Court again on upper limbs trying to fix the damage that had been caused to my shoulder. So yeah, it was quite a long recovery and at this stage what was different is I got sent to a PRU, a personal recovery unit, which meant that obviously my unit were busy fighting in Afghanistan and the people that are left weren't able to pick up those pieces so those that were injured they would get sent to the, the personal recovery unit 
And whilst you're there, they they sort of go through the processes. Well, look, we don't know what's going to happen with you yet, but if you do look like you're going to be medically discharged, let, let's get you in the right place for it. So they sort of started that process really early on, which kind of allowed me to resettle into Civvy Street before I even knew that I was going to be leaving. Okay. And you get medically discharged because you just work out you can't be an infantry soldier anymore physically. You're not up to it in yeah. terms of, I mean... Yeah, so I can't... Le- let alone mentally, I mean... Yeah, I'm not so sure I'm... if you'd been asked to go back a third time with Fiji Air whether or not you would have gone on the flight. Yeah, but probably not. I, I couldn't carry the kit anymore. So my, my left shoulder, the, the scapula weans so as as it as it rotates it comes away from the shoulder as well i still don't have full range of movement with my left arm so i'm a bit of a bit of a guppy there i swim like nemo and i yeah like i i, I can't carry the kit i've i've got this sort of brain injury my my brain's been smashed about again with this this new you, blast are they not offering you hey do you want to be in the stores do you want to be a you know, so in the quartermaster's department, you know, less frontline stuff. Is that an option or? So it's not. In in two thousand and seven, that that was a genuine option, and a lot of the guys, including amputees, got jobs in in stores and administrative roles, and it was a very noble thing to say. Look, your brothers and sisters are here. You, this is where you stay need in to the stay. Tribe, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get you a job, but actually, as you know, whether the military got smaller, doctrine changed. I'm not sure all of those people that were wounded ended up getting moved on because you, you, you know, you're filling a, a space for a, a healthy soldier that we can take to war. And, and I'm not sure at what stage that changed. And I, I may have my facts slightly wrong, but by the time 2012 incident happened, th- there was no wounded people staying in there. So 2014, you are medically discharged. Yeah. You're out of the army. Thank you very much. You, I mean, you personally, but also your family have done enough. As if you ever had to do enough, but, you know, you're out. Or how are you feeling now that you're out? So many different emotions. So I I knew before the med board that the likelihood was I, I wasn't going to be staying in. And I had been resettling for a good six months at this stage. And I, I'm, I'm just over a year past injury by the time I sit my med board. And, you know, I'm lined up. I'm doing courses for if and when I get out. And I'm kind of in that headspace that it's going to happen. So when they say you, you are being medically discharged, this is the date you will, you will move on. It's kind of like, you know what, the, the, the time's right. Now, when I when I got injured the first time, there was there was nothing in me that ever thought, well, time time to leave. It never came on my radar. You know, I was I was, I was a camp orphan. I I holidayed in camp. I mean, I, I I didn't I didn't really go anywhere. My family you were was spread the wings. Subscriber. I was I was I was in in, and then yeah, the second second time with what happened to Jamie as well. It, it was it was the right thing to do if I had a decision. The decision was removed from me, but actually it, it was the thing to do. Yeah. So you you hit Sivvy Street 
got a wife and you forge away. Let's get into the charities that you've worked with, helped. You've done a lot of fundraising since you left. I have, yeah. And you've done that for Help the Heroes, for Safa. And the Colonel's Fund. You've ran marathons for, I can't remember how many every day or for how long, but something ridiculous, didn't you? Yeah, it's a half marathon every day consecutively for 100 days. There you go. You raise a bucket load of money for the charities. Have you been the beneficiary of these charities? Absolutely, I have, yeah. So when, when I was mentally discharged, I, I was in a, in a headspace where I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to move on, it's fine. But I, I'd, I was a really fit individual. I trained once or twice a day and... I ate accordingly and all of a sudden I'm still eating the same, but I'm, I'm not training twice a day and I ballooned. You know? And when I got out, I, I, I piled on a lot of weight and I can't remember how long that period was, but I, I remember my sister taking a picture of me from a particular angle. I looked at that picture and I was like, who is that guy? And I had that awakening moment that said, right, Carl, you need to do something about this. And, and I was like, right, I, I do, I need to do something. And I was going to a, an event where Help for Heroes were hosting and they had a, a band of brothers at the time. And one of the ladies that was there, she was like, look, if you want to get into your fitness and you, and you can't do the impact, because I couldn't do anything impactful of my shoulder at the time. They're like, well, we, we can help get a bike and we'll, we'll see how that goes. And I was like, well, yeah, that 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 that'd actually be great because... You know, I've, I've not actually got a job yet since I've been out. And I'm, so, you know, the financial assistance would be, would be mega. I'd, I'd, that'd be great to get a bike. So Help for Heroes, SAFA and the Colonel's Fund all pitched in together to get me a, a road bike. And then I joined the Help for Heroes triathlon team at the time, Team True Spirit. And I just started riding and, and, and the weight started to fall off a bit. But then because I'd sort of got into this fitness piece my diet had then improved but because my diet improved and I was tired because I was exerting myself my sleep was better and then because my sleep was better my motivation and my morale was better and everything just all tied in and then I went on this nutritional course which Health Heroes put on for, for myself and for my wife it just gave us you know some education about well actually you know what all that rice and you know you think you're having five bananas a day, you think it's actually really healthy, it's not, it's, it's full of this and that. And you're like, ah, just because, you know, when you're in the military, they're like, here's your food, like, oh, gleaming. And I'll run it off if it's too much fat, too much calories, you know, whatever it is. And I was just naive to it all. Uh, and then, so yeah, so there's a couple of small courses here and there, which just help turn these small little cogs which made this this massive impact and, and turned my life around from quite a dark place when, when I first left. So that all helped your mental state improves and you get a slightly more positive outlook on on life. Yeah, absolutely. And because I'm part of this Team True Spirit as well, I then go on to do a, a trial. I never even heard of triathlon, I don't think, beforehand. And then before I know it, within a couple of years, I'm, I'm doing Ironman Bolton 
And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And still because, swimming like Nemo. Still swimming like Nemo, absolutely. <laughs> but because because there's double amputees in there with me, I'm like, well, I've, I've got to get going. This guy's far more injured than I am. And and then because you're surrounded by these 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 war veterans, these these heroes that are are far more injured than I ever was, and they're still just getting their head down and cracking on with it. You're sort of inspired by it. And, and, you know, you can see the good that the charities are having, you know, the, these small acts of kindness, of, 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 of giving and, and just, just having that, that arm to wrap around individuals when they're down, you know, lifts them up and gives them that second life, yeah. you know. And, and you're experiencing that yourself. Absolutely, yeah. So you then go on and put something back and run half marathons for 100 days and... Raise a load of money. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've done a, a couple of cool events. The kids have got involved quite a bit as well. So I took my then four and six-year-old up Snowden and they thoroughly enjoyed it. They now love mountaineering. Do they think all walking. mountains have got a train station at the top? They, they, I haven't asked them that. Or a train going up. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well that was plan B. I was like, like if they're struggling, they can get on the train. We got there and it was... It was it was off, so it was like, well, we go on regardless. But now they've since done Hadrian's Wall raising money for, for charities and stuff. So, you know, it, it, it's grown into a, a family thing now where the, the kids sort of thrive off the, the philanthropic part of it off as the well. Chance. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. It's amazing. Your, your journey, your experience, going back in to where the first incident was, the second incident, and then having to deal with your own recovery and then your your brother being killed. Very briefly, you're running your own business. You are well fit. I mean, the guy sat before me, it all appears that way. And you know, <laughs> it would appear so after spending some time with you on the Yukon in Canada in a boat together that you've got your shit together. Um, but is that how you feel? It's all a facade. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. <laughs> You're a mess. <laughs> <laughs> like a swan. Okay. Uh, no, no, you know what? Yeah. I, when I first left, I, I was definitely lost f- for, for a while. But, uh, you know, the, the journey has put me into a really good place. I'm now the director of, of my own business. I have a number of staff, all ex-military I genuinely love giving back now. We are in a great place as a family. Everyone's healthy. And, you know, my wife's just been doing bodybuilding stuff. And, you know, she's inspiring the kids to do fitness. And, you know, as, as a whole, we're, we're doing really well. Obviously, we, we miss Jamie every day. As you can see from the, the, the pictures and, and things we, we have up, and the, the paintings, you know, he's, he's constantly in our thoughts. And, you know, we change a lot to have him back. We are where we are. And and the family has has healed over time, and we find ourselves in a in a in a um, and and good your place. mum, you got a relationship with her. So unfortunately, I I don't relationship failed a good good five six years ago. Okay. But I have a very strong relationship with my dad and my sister. I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. You'll find the bios for those charities that Carl mentioned listed. So if you're feeling generous, then 
choose one and, and go for it, that would be awesome. If you've got any feedback or you want to get a message to Carl, then as I say, you can email me at the search chicken at gmail.com. Also, if Carl's happy, we'll, I'll put a link to his business so that any of you can look that up and see what he does, or it may even be something that you want to get involved in. Carl, thank you very, very much for your time. No, thanks uh, for listening to my dulcet tones. <laughs> thank you for sharing your story and good luck with the business. I hope that it goes from strength to strength. Um, and uh, who knows, maybe you and I'll go and raise some more money for somebody one day. Maybe. But thanks very much. Indeed. Cheers, man.